Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining me for the 30th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is the psychology of using design to motivate change. With me is Amy Bucher, the author of Engaged, Designing for Behavioral Change. The publisher is Rosenfeld. Amy works at Behavior Change Design at MADPOW and previously worked at CBS Health and Johnson & Johnson. She received her AB from Harvard University and her MA and PhD in Organizational Psychology from the University of Michigan. Amy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Dan. I'm so excited to talk to you today. I'm looking forward to it. So let's begin and level set for listeners. What is your book about in a nutshell? So the Rosenfeld Media, my publisher, they target user experience professionals. So designers, researchers, product managers, and the like. My book is really about this new field, this new subset of UX called behavior change design, which takes the science of psychology and applies it to the research and insight gathering that UX professionals already do. So I really think of my book as a how-to for UX professionals to learn about psychology, especially the psychology of motivation, in a way that makes it very actionable and applicable to design. Okay. And when you refer to UX, what does that mean? Just to make sure our our listeners are clued in. Yeah, it's a user experience. Okay. And those experiences are what kind of duration are we typically talking about? So that, that's actually a really good question that you ask. User experience a lot of times actually refers to digital experiences. So building apps, websites, those sorts of um, you know digitally enabled tools. But part of what I do in my day-to-day job is also what we call service design, which is thinking about the human experiences and the other touch points that may surround those digital products. So if you think about using an app, um, you know one that I just used actually, I, I ordered groceries on Amazon Fresh. So that was a digital experience, but there's all these other pieces of the experience to consider as well. So the warehouse fulfillment of that order, the person who actually delivers it to my house, the communication that happened when I realized I forgot to add something to it. So with under, all of that falls under the UX umbrella, considering the app itself and then all those different services and touch points that bring the entire experience to life for people. Okay. And I suspect that also means that you are basically working on the experience of dealing with all these different components within your client companies, uh, because it sounds like from what you just described, you're going to have multiple touch points within the company as well. Absolutely. And I mean, as you probably know, when you're working with a larger organization, many times they have so many different work streams and services that are part of the user experience, but even within the company, they may not be coordinating together as closely as they could or should be. So part of my role is really to make friends with people all over the organization and bring their work together in this more coherent experience for people. Okay. So based on the fact you have to deal with entrenched interests within companies, let's just be honest about this. I was really intrigued by page 73 in your book, 
where you have a list of cognitive biases. Now we could go to any one of those, but I'm gonna start with two that I think are really apropos to not just changing the behavior of the end user, but also the mindset of those touch points, those contacts that you have within the client company. So I'm gonna just mention two of them. You might wanna to go to others in addition, but I'm curious what you can say about these and how you've tried to overcome these biases that indeed people have. So both of them have to do with change that I really focused on. One of them is status quo bias, and the other one is confirmation bias. What is your experience has been on both those fronts? Yeah, yeah, and these are, um, you know, with all of these biases, these, these are basically the way our brain is hardwired to work because it makes decision-making easier. It helps us make sense of a really complicated environment. But what we find is that we, you know, they, they also cause us to make systematic mistakes. So the confirmation bias is this idea that when people have a belief, they seek out information that confirms that belief and they avoid evidence that may contradict that belief. So uh, that is a, a really difficult one that we absolutely face in our client organizations all the time where people will have a hypothesis about why something may not be working and they are not always open to hearing evidence to the contrary. And then- And, and, and how in the world do you manage to- uh... Hopefully move that needle a little bit. Well, the big thing that I like to do, you know, I consider myself a researcher first and foremost. I'm, I'm trained as a behavior scientist, and that's really a research-focused training. And so we develop these research studies for our clients. And part of my job is to make sure that those research studies are intellectually honest, that we're not um, biasing the, the study itself toward proving a particular hypothesis. We're really doing it to investigate a universe of possibilities. And so part of the way that I, I attack this bias when I see it in my clients is by presenting them with a wide range of evidence, if it exists. Sometimes, you know, sometimes their beliefs are correct. Like the confirmation bias doesn't really matter because even if there isn't a lot of evidence to ignore that is against their hypothesis, but should the evidence exist that is contrary to their beliefs, I make sure that I present that to them. And I also try to make sure that I prevent, present it to them in a way that is really emotionally rich. because as you know, people don't react to facts or information yep. the same way they react to stories. So I was just talking earlier today, actually, I um, presented at an event and I was saying one of the best tools in my toolkit is to either invite my stakeholders to watch research firsthand, to sit in behind, we, we have one-way glass in our lab at, at MadPow, or we do a lot of things virtually right now, of course, actually invite them to watch those conversations with users, with people and hear the emotion in their voices. And if that's not possible, we often will record those sessions and we'll play audio clips of the conversation in addition to just showing the written uh, results of the study because hearing somebody's voice break on the verge of tears when they talk about their frustration with a website is a lot different than just reading the words they say, which is, I tried to complete the transaction and it wouldn't go. Sure. So really bringing that emotion into this, the results that we share with our stakeholders is a powerful way to break through that particular bias. Okay. No, I like that. The emotional richness of putting them in the moment, seeing is believing all of that. Mm -hmm. I, I cut you off a little bit. I think you were probably going to go to status quo bias as well. Yeah. Which is basically that we're comfortable with the things that we already know, you know, change is hard for people and we don't always, um, you know, want, want to do something that's unfamiliar to us where there may be the risk that it, it doesn't turn out to be as good or 
it may even be worse. And again, I actually think storytelling is one of the more powerful ways that we can help overcome this. So you want to paint a picture of the better alternative that might exist for people. And there's all different ways that we could do that depending on the person we're talking to and what makes them tick. So in the business world, a lot of times painting that rosy future is very metrics driven. So it might be pointing to case studies or prior examples or data models that suggest that making the change is going to pay out financially. But a lot of times it really is more what we consider in terms of, you know, telling a story about a person whose life was better in this new way of doing things. Or here's a case study of another company, another group that tried this new approach and look what they've experienced. But really, it's about focusing on that future vision and painting it in a way that is compelling and attractive. Okay. So I I started with cognitive biases for a reason, because I want to now flip to the opposite. And I want to talk about motivation, because you do need motivation to make changes happen for everyone involved. And you particularly often talk about motivation in your book in terms of automatic motivation. So now we've moved from the conscious and the cognitive to what can often be more emotional and subconscious. So maybe just lay the the groundwork for us in terms of what automatic motivation means, and then we'll we'll dive deeper. Yeah. And actually, I will say this is a frustration I have with my own field of psychology, which is that we are very terminology heavy. There are two similarly named types of motivation, both of which I do talk about in the book. So one is automatic motivation, and the other is autonomous motivation. And they're both really important for driving change. So automatic motivation is, it really refers to the mental models that people have about how the world works, with the idea being that we're only interested in taking a behavior if we believe that doing so is going to yield something positive for us. So these mental models, they're really shaped by our cultures, by our experiences. We often don't even realize what those mental models are. I often use the metaphor of, you know, like a fish in a fishbowl doesn't understand what water is, even though... He's surrounded by it all the time. Similarly, we may not understand that we're operating within this mental model of, you know, what appropriate behaviors might be in order to be successful, for example. So there's that piece. And then the autonomous motivation has to do with the source of motivation. What is the thing that makes you want to do this behavior? And autonomous sources of motivation are really intensely personal and meaningful to the individual. So those tend to be things like goals or the way that you view yourself, your identity, And an overarching goal of behavior change, sustainable behavior change, is to help people tap into those personally meaningful sources of motivation so that they can use them as fuel for an ongoing process. Okay. And because I I think change is indeed so difficult, I'm going to go to the devil's advocate question about blockers, because you do talk about motivation blockers in the book. What are some of those? And and again, how does one tackle them? Yeah, there's so a model that I use in the book that I also use a lot in my day job as a behavior change designer is called COMB, where the B, it's an acronym, C-O-M-B. The B stands for behavior. And the idea is that for any behavior, the barriers, the blockers that could stop people from doing it, you can categorize them as being capability, opportunity, or motivation. And I like to describe it as capability are things about yourself. They're things about your ability, either physically or psychologically, to complete the behavior. Um, And psychologically, um, education or knowledge is, is really the key one that you often see, where people just don't understand how to do a behavior. And so that blocks them from successfully completing it. 
opportunity is about the environment that the person is in when they're trying to do the behavior. And it includes both the other people who are around you and then the physical environment, whether or not those make behavior difficult or not. And then motivation, of course, is really, um, you know, I describe it as being about the heart. Um, What is it you want to do? And that's where that automatic motivation, those mental models and belief systems of what is an appropriate behavior come in, but also what we call reflective motivation, which is is this a goal for you? And perhaps even more importantly, how does it measure up against other goals? Because of course, we, we all have multiple goals and they compete with each other sometimes for our attention. We, we can't always pursue every goal at equal intensity all the time. So sometimes we'll see people really value something and they do have it as a goal, but there are just so many other things that are crowding it out that they don't give it attention. Okay, and that makes sense. Now, if we stick with motivation here, Um, motivation and emotion have the same root word in Latin to move, to make something happen. So they are very intricately connected. What in your research and learnings over the years, what have you seen that really makes a difference in terms of how one understands emotion, addresses emotion in the context of behavior change? Yeah. So again, I'm going to go back to being a researcher at heart. And one of the reasons why I build so much research into my process is that I really believe there's no substitute for talking to people and hearing about their experiences in their own words and using that as input to the design process. Because there is this, you know, behavior is emotional. And if you don't understand the emotions behind why people are choosing to do a behavior or not, or why they may want to do a behavior and they are prevented from doing it by something in their environment or or in their situation. If you don't understand those emotions, you're never really going to solve to get that behavior to happen more often. Um, So, you know, it's really about those conversations and sitting down and talking to people and making sure that as often as possible, you're not standing from this expert place on high so much as you're taking your expert knowledge and bringing it into a conversation. Okay. And I was therefore delighted to see that toward the end of the book, you have an entire chapter on trust, which is, of course, often described as the emotion of business. But it seems when people are taxing themselves to make changes, uh, achieving trust is going to be instrumental. Can you tell us a bit more about the role of trust and and why you, in fact, gave it an entire chapter? Yeah. And I'll tell you, actually, this was one of the things that my editor and I went back and forth on when I was writing the book because um, she felt, and I think she had a really good point, that some of the content there overlaps content from elsewhere in the book. But I think that trust is such an important part of the experience of behavior change that it deserved a spotlight, even though some of the ways that we build and support trust are echoed in techniques we use elsewhere. So, you know, a lot of the work that I do is digital. And in digital in particular, we see so many examples of companies that lose people's trust by doing something untoward um, in the relationship. So they either don't offer the services that they claimed they would offer when somebody signed up, or, you know, Facebook is a very easy company to point a finger to with this, where there've been all kinds of stories of them misusing data or running studies on people without letting them know that they were participating in research. The thing is, losing trust is far worse than never having it in the first place, because regaining trust is incredibly difficult. And so as a designer, as a person who creates these sorts of solutions, it's always on my mind that I need to both earn and then maintain the trust of my users because once they walk away, they're not coming back. So I, my goal really is to keep them from walking away. And part of my mental model around my job as a designer then too is also 
if someone is not in the headspace to use something that I've created, if they're not ready to make a behavior change or they're not interested right now, I think it's an ethical imperative for me not to push that, but instead to respectfully say to them, you know, and, and when I say respectfully say, I'm talking about within the confines of the product, not necessarily me as an individual, but sure. you know, we've created this thing and it promises you the following benefits. And whenever you're ready, it's here for you. But I'm not going to send you a thousand emails or try to put a rigid incentive system around it so you feel forced to use it or so on and so forth, because those sorts of things also start to break trust. You start to wonder, why is this, you know, why is this company so invested in me using this product? What are they really trying to do here? Um, and it gets back into the motivational piece as well. So I mentioned autonomous motivation and doing things for reasons that are really personally meaningful. That's where behavior change lasts. That's where you, you get changes that go the distance. And so I see forming trust as a really necessary piece of the foundation to getting people to let you into that. Autonomous forms of motivation are really personal. They're really intimate. And it's a privilege when I am talking to somebody in a research study and they let me look into their inner world enough that I can understand what makes them tick. They need to trust me for that to happen. Sure. No, I thought it was instrumental to have it in the book because if you're going to ask them to exert themselves and make the change, you then want to solidify that change, which is going to require trust, and you don't want to dissipate it because I entirely agree with you. There are two aversive emotions, disgust and contempt, but disgust is quick. It's very visceral. You can't overcome that. Uh, in my studies over the years, I would conclude that trust, once punctured and bringing on contempt is really hard to overcome. It settles in as an attitude. It's almost like a cognitive emotion. It's very, very strange and fascinating how contempt versus trust works. Mm -hmm. um, you talk about willpower in the book. You say, in fact, it's, it's more like a muscle. Can you talk to us about the use and also the not overusing willpower as an instrument or a means of, of getting this change to happen? Absolutely. And I, I also do want to say, Dan, you are really good at finding the um, the spots where there was a lot of interesting behind the scenes conversation in the book. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think you could have known this, but the willpower research in psychology has been under a lot of scrutiny in recent years. So psychology as a field has this thing called the replication crisis, where a lot of classic studies, when researchers try to rerun them, the results show up differently. And that tells us that the initial results are not reliable, that perhaps they were never correct, or maybe something has changed in the world that renders them incorrect for now. Uh, but as a field, we're kind of going through this reckoning with our past and trying to understand like what is the truth and where can we rely on research. And, this and I think that includes in part the famous marshmallow test. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, it does actually. Um, so one of the things that I did in, in writing this book was I actually went back and anytime I cited research like willpower, I reviewed some of the more recent literature myself and, and made sure that anything I included, I felt comfortable myself saying, you know, to the best of my knowledge and the best of my ability to evaluate what I'm putting here is still true according to the research. So I just okay. want to provide that caveat because I've actually had, a, <laughs> I've had some people say to me, like, you know, if you just go forward and you don't mention that you understand that this research has some some question marks around it, you, mm -hmm. you reduce your credibility. So because I want your audience to trust me, I'm going to say, sure. say that. Um, but yeah, decision making is a hard thing. It takes mental resources. And what this research has found basically is that if you ask people to repeatedly make decisions, 
by the end of that process, they don't have as much energy left to devote to the decision-making process. So they may be really carefully considering evidence with those first few choices, you know, really contemplating what should I do and let's make a pro-con list. But by the end of it, it's, it's like they're just burnt out. It's like, okay, whatever, A, B, A, B. And so when you think yeah. about behavior change, one of the things we really don't want to do is bombard people with times that they have to make effortful decisions. We want to automate as many things as possible so that people don't have to expend that cognitive energy on making a decision, whether it's, you know, should you go work out now? Yes, no. Where should you work out? How long should you work out? What type of workout? What should you wear to do the workout? Those are the kinds of things where you want to try to routinize them and get people into habits so that they can spend their cognitive energy elsewhere. Okay. Well, I admit this is a very personal topic because for the first time in 47 years, I'm trying to change my tennis grip. So I am trying to jettison a lot of habits and, and go someplace else. Anyway, um, you mentioned the literature review and the fact that some of these issues still boil up and old studies are getting revisited. One of the things I liked about the book is you also mentioned podcasts and the fact that there are all sorts of ongoing discussions out there uh, with podcasts using a, a focus on, on behavior and behavior change. So you mentioned, for instance, one of my favorites, Behavioral Grooves by Kurt Nelson and Tim Houlihan. Uh, some other ones as well. Anything you want to say about these podcasts and how they're helping revisit these, these historic issues around willpower, change, trust, anything else of that nature? Yeah, I love these podcasts. Um, and I, I have to say, I used to listen to a lot more podcasts before the pandemic because I had a commute to work and I would listen to them <laughs> as I you know, sure. walked to the trade station. So I, the time that I used to spend on them has been reduced. And I, I actually find that I, I feel less in touch with the field as a result. Like it's something I think I need to make some deliberate space for because what these podcasts do is, you know, first of all, they're gathering really current information. They're talking to people who are actively doing work in these subject areas, but they're also encapsulating them in a, an entertainment form. You know, you're having, you're listening to a conversation where people are telling jokes and laughing and telling stories. It's very easy to listen to and digest. And I think that's really important both for people who are newer to the field and maybe don't have the academic background or interest to sit down and read, you know, a, a, an academic paper, or people like me where I have a lot of experience, but I don't have a lot of time. And you know, by the time I get to the end of my workday, if I do want to learn some more about my field and stay current, I want to do it in a way that feels like entertainment. So the podcasts, I think, are just a, a great thing. I'm really glad that they're so popular, and I like there's just so many out there. I wish I had more hours in the day to listen to more. Sure. Well, when I think about podcasts, I think about being sociable and social media and all these things. And one of the things I also thought was interesting about your book was, you know, it's easy to think of the user experience as this one person is in front of this one device or machine or whatever is going on. And it's, you know, that one-to-one -one relationship, but you bring in the we um, and in, in several different ways. So one of them in terms of trying to help make change happen is you use the term accountability buddies. Can you Tell us about that term and why that's important. Yeah. So an accountability buddy is when you designate somebody else, usually it's somebody who you know personally, but it doesn't have to be. I've actually seen examples where um, you know there are Facebook groups where you can pair with an accountability buddy that you've never met before, but it's someone who's basically there to um, keep an eye on whether you're following through on a commitment you've made and they don't have any actual power. You know, they can't punish you or anything like that, but 
human beings are really motivated to be liked and to be respected by others. And to know that someone else has that eye on your behavior, that they're going to know if you didn't follow through with the thing you said you'd do, can be a really powerful motivator. So that's what an accountability buddy is. And I think they one of the things that's really cool about accountability buddies is that they can play a very specific role in your life. So if you think about the whole roster of people, you know, not everybody has to be your best friend or, or, you know, not everybody has to be everything to everyone. An accountability buddy could be someone who you share a deep interest with in a particular area and you're able to bond with respect to that. So like maybe you both love, um, you know, a certain type of fitness and that person becomes your accountability buddy that you're going to do those workouts. And this is the person that you can talk ad nauseum to about all the things about that workout. So you don't have to bore everybody else with it. <laughs> okay. Another way in which you bring in the, the we is to admit that the user, um, you can play to their social identity, which you call image tailoring. How specifically in your work have you managed to to marshal or leverage this this notion of image tailoring? Actually, quite a lot. I worked for a number of years for a company called Health Media that was then acquired by Johnson & Johnson. And our core product was something called digital health coaching. So the, the reason I even know about image tailoring, actually, is because of my experience with this company. Its founder, Vic Strucker, who I also interviewed in the book, um, did his re- line of research was around personalizing or tailoring health behavior change content. And he's just generally at a high level found that the more you can personalize stuff, the more people listen to it and take action based on it. And that extends to images. If you can put images within a web page, for example, that correspond to the person looking at its demographic background. So for me, you know, it would be like a white woman, early forties, all that sort of thing. People's eyes are actually drawn more to the content on the page, not to the image itself, which is interesting, but to the content on the page. And then they're more likely to remember that content later and to believe that it's self-relevant. So one of the things that we did very heavily at that company and that I've tried to do elsewhere in my work since is if we knew those demographic variables about our users, we would actually, we had an algorithm running behind the scenes that would select different imagery for each page that more closely reflected the background of the user. And even to the point where when we had international releases, like we, we released our software in Singapore where the ethnic mix is very different from the United States. And one thing in the U.S. that happens a lot, and I, I actually think that we're moving away from this and that's a good thing, but you know, Asian American being one big bucket, even though there's multiple different ethnicities within the category of Asian, that doesn't work in Singapore. So we had to get much more detailed with what the ethnic tailoring looked like in that environment. And we, you know, we, we had studies, we had data that showed that consistently, the more you could tailor that imagery, the more the content was successful at changing behavior. Sure. No, I, I've spoken in Singapore and took time to, to uh, explore the community. So, you know, some of it comes from an influence from India, also from China, uh, very different, you know, cultural backgrounds and sources. Um, and, I, and I agree with your point. I mean, the easiest thing to sell people on is themselves. So if you can, you can allow for the reflection, uh, you're going to make some progress quite possibly. Speaking of interactions, one more angle here. You mentioned live experts. You mentioned avatars. You mentioned chat box. You know, chat boxes, maybe different, these three things. But which of them is, is more effective or more effective in certain situations? Any, any learning, gleanings from that? Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on what your priorities are. So chatbots, you know, they're fully automated, so they're very scalable. So if you're thinking about reducing operational costs and keeping a lean staff, a chatbot can be really great. 
Chatbots are also great if you're dealing with fairly superficial information. You know, they're, they're fabulous at helping people with wayfinding on a website. They're not maybe so fabulous with having, I don't know, complex financial planning decisions where you might really need a human being to sort through information and understand some of the emotional content that underlies that. Um, you know, live experts on the other hand, that's kind of the other extreme of the continuum where okay. there's a high operational cost to it, but they can really dig in and they can deal with some of that more, you know, heady emotional content that people have. And then avatars, um, you know, really just one of the the interesting things there that I found, I, I'm always looking for that sweet spot between those two, what I'll describe as the two extremes, the completely human driven and the completely technology driven. And avatars have done a pretty good job of filling in that space where from a functional perspective, they may not be all that different from a chat bot, but people can interact with them in a way that's a little bit more similar to how you interact with a human. They're typically represented more like a face on the screen. Yep. And there's been quite a bit of research that's shown that people trust avatars more than they trust human beings with certain types of information, especially stigmatized information, health stuff, you know, talking about smoking or, uh, you know, your, your terrible diet. And I think it's because you're always worried the human being is going to judge you, but you Mm -hmm. understand that the avatar can't. And Ah, so interesting. Yeah. Early in my career, because we did a lot of self-report data digitally, it wasn't an avatar, but it was digital self-report. And customers would say to us, how do you know people aren't lying? And we did a lot of work verifying against other validated data to show like, no, the self-report's actually pretty accurate. But now with all, all of the research that's been done on avatars and seeing how people trust technology with some of the stigmatized information, I think actually people may be more honest with technology with some of this stuff. And then the other thing, of course, uh, there's a lot of research where Timothy Bickmore, who I'm not sure where he is now. He used to be at Northeastern University. He did research using avatars in a hospital setting when people were getting discharged. Like, you know, when you're leaving the hospital and they come and they tell you all the things you have to do when you go home and your follow up visits and your medications. And it's a ton of information. And most people in that situation are feeling pretty overwhelmed. They're probably physically uncomfortable because of whatever's just happened in the hospital. And so. Dr. Bickmore ran these studies where he had an avatar people could interact with, and it provided all that same information, but because it's on the computer screen, people could ask it to slow down. They could repeat sections of it. They could add their own questions to it. And he found that people spent more time with the avatars than they did with a live human being, and they, again, trusted it more. So I think that there's a lot of potential for that technology in particular. Okay, well, that is really fascinating because it's another validation for having trust as a chapter of the book, uh, because, of course, contempt can be triggered by, you know, I don't trust you, I don't believe you, but also because I feel disrespected or, you know, trust is a very uh, contagious emotion back and forth. So if I don't feel respected or trusted, I don't give it back in turn and the whole thing starts. Yeah, so... Another interesting thing about avatars and chatbots and these technologies, though, is, you know, they're created by human beings, but when they're actually operational, they're kind of, there's not a lot of opportunity to change or update them in that moment. And they can be wrong, which is an opportunity to, again, lose people's trust. But I've seen some really nice examples of technologies that make their own limitations clear so that they don't elicit that sense of, you don't know me or I like you said, disgust. I think that sometimes can be an emotion that you feel when you're trying to communicate with a piece of technology and it really isn't getting what you're trying to say. 
There was um, a program called Alfred, which I want to say Google bought them. They've been acquired and, you know, the IP was absorbed into another product and they don't exist anymore. But it was a a restaurant recommendation app that you could use. You'd tell it what meal you wanted to eat and, you know, a couple parameters around what you were looking for. And it would spit out a suggestion. And if you didn't like its suggestion, it would actually apologize to you. And it would say something like, I, you know, I'm just a stupid robot. I'm sorry. Please teach me and help me learn and be better next time. Um, not probably not quite as uh, subservient as that, but the idea was basically like, I know I'm limited and I need you to help me. Please help me and I'll do better next time. And I thought that was actually a really, really nice way to deal with some of the limitations of this technology in a way that, again, like it just enhances that ongoing relationship, makes people feel good about talking to the technology and like it is something they can trust. Yeah, and, and suggesting that there's humility, that I have my limitations as technology doesn't put one in the superior position of being judgmental and, and dismissing someone. So I, I want to thank you, Amy, so much for having been my guest. This is Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. This has been episode number 30, The Psychology of Using Design to Motivate Change. Uh, my guest is the author of Engage. Designing for Behavior Change. To check out other episodes or my books or other activities, please visit my company's website at the obligatory three W's and sensorylogic.com. If you've got a follow-up question for Amy, please feel free to email me at dhill at sensorylogic.com. If you've enjoyed today's show, be sure to give it a five-star rating or review online. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an appropriate epigram. As we've been talking about motivation and behavior change today, I couldn't resist this quote from Winston Churchill, who said, to improve is to change, to be perfect is to change often. Until next time, be kind and stay safe. 